Good morning, everyone. Kevin here from Skywatcher, and welcome to another episode of the What's Up webcast. We do this every Friday, 10 a.m. Pacific, right here at the Skywatcher USA YouTube channel. Um, every Friday, we check out everything from what's up in the nighttime sky to equipment to helpful tips and tricks on viewing and imaging. And of course, at the end of the month, we have a special guest on to talk about their specialty in the field of astronomy. Um, it is the beginning of the month, or yes, it's the beginning of the month. It's March 3rd, uh, 2023. We're three months into the year already which is crazy um if you like what you see here at the what's up webcast please go ahead and subscribe leave a like on a video let us know we're doing a good job and that we should keep doing it if you have an episode idea go ahead and email us at info at skywatchusa.com and title it what's up um, we're always looking for future ideas on episodes if you also want to keep up with what's going on at Skywatcher, maybe potential sales or all kinds of offerings, you can go over to skywatcherusa.com. Go up at the top and click subscribe and save. Enjoy our email list. And yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, if you're looking for some cool Skywatcher swag, you can go over to skywatcher.threadless.com. We got all kinds of cool shirts and stuff like that that you can match up to your favorite product or just some cool things to go along with your astronomy gear. Um, but go ahead and check that out over there if you're looking for something nifty um, to do. But yeah, so it's Friday. We're digging into the beginning of the month, which means we're checking out what's up in the month. Um, this is also March, is also Women's Month. So we have a lot of uh, women-based stuff happening at the end of the month. That's going to be really cool. We're going to have uh, Stella on, uh, which is an astrophotography group for women. We'll have the organizers of that group on, which is going to be cool. Uh, they're all fantastic people, amazing astrophotographers. Uh, we're going to have Kat Manchin on at the end of the month, which is, she is a fantastic space artist. You can check her out on Instagram. And then we're having Jess Rodriguez, who is the STEM organizer for Mount Wilson Observatory. Uh, we'll be wrapping up the month with her. So we've got a lot of special guests packed into the month because it's a special uh, theme going on. But today, we're just talking about what's going on in the nighttime skies for March and also unveiling the new totem target. Um, for those of you who have done totem, which is target of the month, uh, they're generally very challenging targets that we try to put up and get astrophotographers to go out and take some cool pictures of them. Um, and you get a cool patch at the end of the month. For those of you who have uh, sent in uh, all of your February entries for Abel 12, uh, we have all of that list put together and we'll be shipping out your patches here in the next week or two. Uh, so keep an eye out on the mail. Uh, you'll be getting your patch uh, for last month's entry. So we appreciate all of you uh, who provided your images for that. Right on. Okay, let's get going. So the brightest thing in the nighttime sky, of course, is the moon. And the new moon for the month is March 21st, which means your dark sky weekend to get out and view is the 18th and the 19th. However, there's going to be a really fairly thin crescent on the 25th and the 26th. So you could get out on the following weekend too. Just know that the moon's going to be a little bit bright in the early evening and then it will set probably before midnight and then you'll have a nice run of the uh, springtime objects and all the galaxies that are up um, in the later part of the evening. Now that's new moon. That'll be the darkest uh, part of the month, of course. And then we have the full moon. Uh, the full moon this month is March 7th, which is coming up on Tuesday. So next Tuesday is the full moon. And the name of the full moon is the worm moon. Uh, this basically comes from the worm starting to come out of the ground um, and the trees and all kinds of stuff. 
um, as the ground thaws uh, from the cold winter months and we start to move into spring, which will be at the end of the month as well. Um, so that is the full moon uh, for the month. That's going to be on March 7th. So you probably already see the big bright moon in the nighttime sky already. Um, and yeah, so something kind of cool there. Uh, planets. Uh, planets have... We're kind of getting out of the planetary season. I'm going to pull up uh, the software here. This is Stellarium. Stellarium's a free software you can get online and for your devices, I believe, as well. I don't play with it too much on my uh, iPhone and iPads, but um, it's a fantastic program. It is free. Um, it's a nice planetarium program that you can download on your computer and kind of figure things out for the nighttime sky, constellations. It's really kind of an awesome software. Um, and you can also control telescopes with it with the right connections. So... Um, right now, you've probably seen in the western sky just after sunset, Jupiter and Venus are kind of hanging out there. They had a close uh, uh, conjunction the other day. Uh, there we go. Boop. You probably saw this. Unfortunately, here in Arizona, it was cloudy and rainy, um, so we missed it. Um, but yeah, Jupiter and Venus had their close approach um, on the 1st, which I believe was Wednesday. Uh, so that was on the 1st. And now they're going to start making their way uh, farther apart. We are losing Jupiter now. It's starting to get out of the nighttime sky. You'll see it over the next week or two. Um, but it is descending down towards the horizon and we will be losing it. Venus, on the other hand, is uh, quickly heading upward. Um, so that's going to be visible throughout the entire month. Um, as far as other planets go, we still have Uranus kind of hanging out up in the nighttime sky. Mars is pretty high overhead, an easy one to see, but it's not really an ideal position for viewing. Uh, you can look at it, it's kind of like an orange little ball, but there's not a lot of detail on it. Um, the close approach that we had this year wasn't the best, um, especially compared to like two years ago when it was very close. Um, but it's still up there if you want to check it out. It's going to look like a little orange ball. Maybe in a larger telescope under good seeing with some magnification on it, you'll be able to get some good stuff out of it. Um, but that's pretty much it for planets. All of our major uh, naked eye planets are actually leaving. Uh, Saturn's gone. Jupiter's pretty much done. Uh, we do have Venus. Uranus, you're going to need a telescope to see. Mars um, is hanging out up there as well. But we're pretty much wrapped up for the planetary season uh, up until later around the fall of this year when the planets will rope back around or you get up in the early morning and check them out then. Uh, but if you're an evening person such as myself and you don't get up early to look at the planets unless there's something incredibly special going on, me, um, I'm that person, um, we are pretty much done um, with the planetary season as we make it into um, the springtime. So anyway, uh, that's what's going on with the planets. Not a lot to talk about because, once again, we're out of the season and pretty much shutting down um, until the fall if you're into the planets or you're going to be an early morning riser at this point. Uh, the sun. The sun is starting to kick up right now. First, real quick thing, don't ever observe the sun unless you have the proper filters for your telescope or equipment. No one needs to be getting hurt out there. Um, so the sun is being very dynamic right now. It's constantly changing. It's an amazing thing to go observe. Now, there are different filters that you can observe the sun with, such as white light filters, uh, which look at sunspots, um, which is in the photosphere. Um, and then you have the chromosphere, which is where the uh, a lot of the activity happens for hydrogen alpha as well as calcium filters. 
Um, hydrogen alpha is probably the most dynamic filter uh, for observing the sun. Make sure you are using a true solar hydrogen alpha filter. And if you don't know anything about that whatsoever, we have some episodes from a couple years ago that go into the deep dive details of understanding the different types of solar filters and what they do. Um, so if you're trying to get into this, um, go back and check out those episodes. That would be a very good one to actually take a look at, especially as we head into eclipse season in October. Um, now is the time that you really want to get out, get that equipment because October we have that annular eclipse or a partial eclipse, depending on where you are in the, the U.S. and North America. That's going to be visible. And then, of course, the following year in April, uh, we have that total solar eclipse, which is going to be awesome. But for most of the U.S. and most of North America, it's also going to be a very deep partial eclipse from pretty much anywhere in the region. So definitely make sure you're ready to go and you have the proper equipment. Don't be the person that waits to the last minute. It's kind of like Christmas and you're shopping on Christmas Eve. You knew when it was coming. Don't push it. Um, now would be the time to go out and get it, um, whatever that it is going to be. Uh, now, if you want to see what's going up on the sun, I like to use this website. I just go over to Google and type in Gong, G-O-N-G-H-Alpha. Um, and then that gives me what's going on uh, right now. Today looks phenomenal. Um, if you have a hydrogen alpha telescope or a filter, there's a ton of filaments on the sun. There's a nice detached prominence over here. There's a lot of active regions. So if, if you have an H alpha solar telescope, today looks like a really nice day to get out and observe if you've got the weather to do so. I know it's been kind of weird here in the Southwest and the Western part of the country with all kinds of rain and snow. Um, but there's some really cool stuff going up on the sun right now. So I highly recommend getting out there and taking a look at that. Um, especially if you've got the equipment. If you've got just a white light filter, that's okay too. There are some sunspots out there. That's kind of a cool thing to go check out as well. But do try to get your hands on an H-alpha filter at some point for observing the sun because it's awesome. Daystar cork on an SVX140. Kevin, that's pretty sweet setup. Those SVX140s are awesome. I really wanted an SVX180, but they're way too much money for me. So, but a 140 is pretty sweet. Congratulations on owning one of Vic's uh, amazing scopes. And a Daystar filter. Jen's stuff is pretty awesome too. Uh, meteor showers. There's not much going on for meteor showers this month. Uh, we're going to plow through this episode really quick today. Um, there's no major meteor showers happening right now in March. Uh, April does have some stuff coming up, uh, so that'll be kind of cool. Uh, comets. The big comet that everyone's been checking out, I think, has pretty much wrapped up its tenor um, at this point, but let's see what's going on. I like to use cometchasing.skyhound.com um, if you want to go out and see what's going down with comets. Um, Right now in the Northern Hemisphere, there's nothing major happening at the moment. Um, let's see. Hey, Kevin, question. Do you use a heat dispersion filter or some sort? Of oh, yeah. Let me stop this real quick because today's going to go very quickly, but I'd rather keep this while we're talking about the sun um, and there's not a lot going on at the moment. So uh, let's see. Eric's question is, hey, Kevin, question. Do you have do you use a heat dispersion filter? on some some sort on it i'm assuming are we talking about so i'm assuming you're talking about a solar filter um 
So the only filters that I... Let me see how I can put this. So I have a couple different pieces of equipment. Um, I have a Lunt Double Stack 40. Um, I have a work here at work. We have a Lunt Double Stack 60. And then I have an original Tucson Coronado 90 Double Stack. And then a Daystar 0.4 Angstrom Quantum filter, which is a monstrosity um, of a powerhouse when it's put on the big refractors. So... The dedicated telescopes like my Coronado and the Luntz, um, they have all the filtration built in on them. They, you just go out, throw them out there and use it, um, and they're pretty much set to go. The Daystar filters, however, are a little bit different. Um, they're a rear-mounted Edelon rather than a front mount or pressure uh, tuned where it's built into a system inside of a cavity. Um, so when you're using a Daystar filter, that's normally being paired with some kind of a, a parent telescope. Um, now with that, you will need to use some kind of additional filtration in the system, depending on the aperture of your telescope. Um, I use a UVIR filter. Um, uh, that's what, uh, the, uh, Tiffany and Jen over at Daystar recommended. Um, the UVIR handles most of the logical refractors. Um, you put that in front of, the, the Daystar filter, usually on the diagonal, and that reflects some of the heat out of the system. Um, on larger instruments, like a 150 or even a Kevin's 140, um, if you're going to be using it for like real serious stuff, you might benefit from having a front-mounted energy rejection filter, or ERF, um, which can be a little spendy because they are very large uh, filters. Um, so... And they are generally set up specifically for your telescope. Uh, so if you're using a Daystar um, or you're thinking about buying one, I would recommend calling up uh, Daystar, talking to Tiffany. She's amazing. She usually picks up the phone. Uh, she'd be happy to answer any of those questions for you. But if you're thinking about buying a Daystar filter, and if you are, now would be the time to do it. Um, give them a call and they will tell you specifically what you need for your specific setup. Um, if you're using a small refractor, you could probably get away with something a little bit more budget friendly. If you're using something big and serious, you might need to look at a dedicated ERF. Most of the time, a UVIR filter works just fine. I think I have an Optolong one. Um, Kevin's got an Astronomic. They all work. Um, but yeah, if you're really thinking about getting like a Daystar filter in particular, definitely go out, talk to the uh, team over at Daystar before you really get things going um, and make sure you get all the equipment that you need to do it safely. If you're buying something dedicated like a Coronado or a Lunt, it's ready to go out of the box. You don't need any additional equipment most of the time. Uh, let's see. Did you observe Jupiter in the Venus conjunction? No, it was cloudy and rainy. So I saw it the day before and I saw it a little bit last night, but I didn't get the, the close approach one because it was completely clouded over. Um, I forgot Ceres. I normally don't talk about the minor planets too much, um, mainly because I try to approach it from something as a beginner where you can just go outside and check it out. That's my mentality on putting this episode, these episodes together for what's up in the nighttime sky is to kind of blend it on things that someone new to the hobby could go out and see. And then when we get into the later part of the episode, we're talking deep sky targets. Then I throw in the more difficult stuff, but 
series is up there. It's a good challenge target. It's not that hard actually to see, but um, it is a cool one to go see. So I'm sorry I didn't include that one. Uh, okay, let me, there's, I want to share something real quick. Uh, hold on just a second. Website's so long. So let me see. Did they put it up yet? Oh, here we go. They did put it up. Um, real quick, just because I was talking about beginners. Um, if, if you're looking to get started with your telescope or you need some help, um, real quick here, we will be at the Earth and Space, me, at Focus Astronomy and my friends. A lot of you met them at Seoul. If you came out to Seoul, it's the same venue. Um, if you are looking to just come, come out and observe the nighttime sky, we're doing a public event on March 11th. That's next Saturday um, from 7 to 9. We'll have telescopes out for you to observe the nighttime sky. But if you're new to astronomy, we're doing a telescope help class. That's from 2 to 4 p.m. So you can come on out. Um, we'll set up inside. You can learn how to use your telescope effectively. And you can also register right here online. It's the Earth and Space Expedition Center.org. I know that's a lot to remember. But go ahead and check that out. If you're new to astronomy and you want to learn some stuff, come on out. Our team will be there. You can sign up. Um, and then you can kind of cruise around the museum as well, which is pretty cool. And then if you want, you can come hang out with us and do some observing uh, that night. I'll have my 28-inch daub out there along with the rest of our friends. Um, but come on and join us uh, next Friday. Or not Friday. Next Saturday, March 11th here in Phoenix. Um, North Phoenix. Anyway, uh, continuing on. Uh, like I said, there's no meteor showers this month. Um uh, no major comets, uh, but let's get into deep sky targets. Now, there's not a ton of, there's a lot of stuff going up in the nighttime sky. We could do a whole hour on all the crazy targets that are up there uh, right now, but I'm kind of just keeping it to the basics. Um, we're still in the winter months, so we have M42 and the Hunter, uh, 1,500 light years away. This is an amazing nebula if you're going out and just getting started with astrophotography. Um, or if you're observing, it looks good in pretty much any size telescope. So it's a fantastic object for both sides of the hobby, uh, for both intro and advanced. Um, it's an amazing target to go observe. Um, this will be a cool one if you are coming to the stargazing next Saturday. Yeah, Saturday. And the weather's clear. It's an awesome target in the 28-inch dob, especially when we put the night vision in it. It's pretty awesome. Um, but M42 is a staple of the winter months. So that's an easy target for anybody to go out and observe. Um, it does provide a bit of a challenge if you're an astrophotographer. The reason being is you shoot these long exposures, you're going to blow out the core. Um, and you need to learn how to basically shoot shorter exposures to bring the core out and then uh, weave that in uh, to get the image that you see like this. So there is some challenging uh, things you have to do with this nebula. And it's a good learning experience for those who are doing astrophotography. Next one, which is my personal favorite, is the Horsehead IC434. That's also in the Hunter, about 1,300 light years away. Not far from M42, but it's the complete other side of the spectrum when it comes to difficulty. Um, M42 is a walk in the park. You can see it in a pair of binoculars if you wanted to. The Horsehead Nebula, on the other hand, takes 
cameras or some serious aperture uh, to get out there and do the observing on and some specialized equipment. Um, I had a gentleman, it was actually a joke. Um, he might be watching too, but it was funny. Um, I did a small, I do a small star party for my friends group out on the east side of Phoenix once a year. Um, we have a lot of snowbirds that come in from out of state. Um, so we were, we usually do an event. Um, a few years ago, I brought my old 20 inch obsession out and let them look. And of course it's a 20 inch. So the first thing everybody wants to try is the horse head. Tried it on there. You could barely see it. And then a few years later, the 28 inch was done. So I brought the 28 out a year ago when we first finished it and we tried it again and he couldn't see it. Uh, it was there, but he couldn't see it. And this year rolls around and I've got my 28 inch now with the night vision and he finally saw it. So the running joke was I had to spend an incredible amount of money to get this guy to be able to see the Horsehead Nebula. It was funny. I guess you had to be there, but it was funny. Um, the Horsehead Nebula is a bit of a challenge because it's mainly hydrogen. There's not a lot in there that the human eye that can really detect well. Um, I see 434, which is all this red hue. Um, the eye just doesn't pick up that frequency of light very well. Um, an H-alpha filter for imaging won't do you any good, but an H-beta filter, which is basically shows the exact same details as hydrogen alpha, but it's less excited. Hydrogen um, is more in the green part of the spectrum, which is easier for our eye to see. So you would use an H-beta filter on this nebula to help bring it out. What I would let you know is if you are trying to see the horse head, it tends to be a lot larger than people think. Um, and I find if you have the telescope, you want to move it side to side to see what moves in the field. Generally, you're going to see a very faint, almost looks like a black thumbprint. Um, and then you'll see a little bit of the haze of IC434, this red portion there. That's what you're looking for. Um, sometimes you need to get Alan attack out of the field of view because it's pretty bright. Um, but the flame nebula right down here is incredibly easy to see in most telescopes. Um, but, uh, if you can see the flame, then you know you're nearby, but the horse head is a lot larger than some people actually think. Um, especially when you're using a larger aperture instrument and the focal length's about 2000 millimeters or longer, it can be difficult. Uh, the Pleiades is still up there hanging out, M45, that's in Taurus, about 500 light years away. Uh, it's an amazing object in pretty much any size telescope, whether it's naked eye or binoculars or a small telescope or a big telescope. Um, now the nebulosity that's around this, uh, is actually quite interesting because the star cluster itself is actually passing through the dust currently. So they're not actually part of each other generally. So they're actually passing through. Um, the tricky thing about this type of nebula, cause it's a reflection nebula. So the light from the stars is reflecting off of dust inside the nebula. There's no filter that really helps you, um, with this. However, if you are using a one-shot color camera, the new Antlia Tri-Band filter does a pretty nice job if you're trying to shoot targets like this. It's not particularly designed to help you with reflection nebulas, but the band passes that that filter allows to go through um, can help in like a light pollution location where it doesn't completely eliminate a reflection nebula like some of the narrow band filters. So I just got one of those filters. I have a couple friends who have those filters now. 
um, and I have noticed it does a very nice job um, at kind of being a better, it's better than like a general light pollution filter, like a CLS filter or like an L Pro or something like that. And it's not quite as extreme as like an L Enhance. Um, so if you are a one-shot color imager, um, I would definitely take a look at that Antlia Tri-Band filter because it works very well uh, for a lot of targets out there. Uh, so good luck with that. They're it's they're not too spendy either because they're not like a full blown narrowband filter. Um, another target um, up near the hunter is M seventy eight, sixteen hundred light years away. Now M seventy eight's a bit tricky. Um, there's a lot going on in this region. So you have a reflection nebula, you have a dark nebula, and then it's right next to the Barnard Loop, which is a large emission nebula. So um, again, this one's not exactly ideal for in-town observing. And even in dark skies, it's not the most amazing target to see. I do have to try it with the large daub now and see how it looks. Um, but uh, this one's a very dynamic region if you're doing astrophotography because the dark nebulas in here are very complex. Um, there's some reflection nebulas in there. And then, of course, you're so close to the Barnard Loop that there's a lot of emission going through there. Uh, this particular one was actually done um, is LRGB, and then there's some H-alpha wrapped into it, uh, which is kind of a cool thing to do, especially if you're a monochrome imager, uh, where you can actually shoot your color, do your luminance. And if you are new to monochrome, the most important part of it is a good luminance channel. The luminance channel is where all your structure and all your detail is going to come from. And then you can go back and splice the color in there. But if you want to pop uh, the hydrogen out in something like this, um, what you can do is go back and shoot hydrogen for a few hours or H-alpha and then weave that in to some of the red data and help pop that out and kind of blend it in there. And it actually helps pronounce uh, the hydrogen in the clouds a little bit more. So it's a good one to actually try out um, and kind of experiment with that. You can actually probably start to do this with a one-shot color camera because of these new filters that are coming out. And then you have the abilities like in PixInsight where you're able to fracture um, the color channels apart, so RGB. And then you could actually go back and try to weave some of that data in there. You just don't have as much control as you would a monochrome uh, thing. Uh, let's see. There's some questions in here. For one-shot color, what filters would you recommend? Filter wheel full or not change? Let's see. Okay. Um, so in the past, I have normally just picked a filter for when I'm using the one shot color cameras, I usually just pick a filter for the night and just keep it in there on like a filter drawer. Um, I'm a big fan of the star Arizona filter sliders. They're awesome. However, I just did an install for a friend's telescope. We switched his hyperstar system out for one of our Esprit one fifties and did a bunch of upgrades on it. That was the first time I've actually put a filter wheel on a color system. And it's something that I've actually wanted to do for a while. And it's actually kind of nice because you can actually use filter wheels now with a color kit. Not that you physically couldn't before, but you have a reason to actually have filter wheels now for a one-shot color camera because there's options now. Um, so 
I like the idea. I like filter wheels. And here's the reason I like filter wheels. Uh, filter wheels are going to be able to contain all the filters that you're going to be using in a safe space. And it keeps them cleaner rather than you flipping out filter drawers all the time. Um, obviously, there's going to be certain setups like a Hyperstar or a Rasa or something like that where it's a filter wheel would be a large obstruction. Um, but if you're using like a refractor or Newtonian or that's not going to be a problem or obstructions won't be a problem. I like the idea of having a one shot color with the filter wheel, especially because most of those filters you're going to be using are going to be for imaging, right? So the filter wheel system that I put on, uh, for my buddy's setup, uh, it's a 16, it's a 6,200 one shot color, big, big monster camera. Um, and then we just have a five position filter wheel, which we did an Antlia tri-band, an Antlia dual band. Uh, the Antlia dual band is the HA-03 version. Their Antlia did come out, I think it was Antlia. They did come out with an S2H beta uh, filter. I don't know what you're going to do with that filter. I'm sorry to Antlia, but H beta and S2 is kind of a weird combo for filters. It's kind of like the filter no one ever asked for, if I'm being honest. I'm sure it's phenomenal because um, Antlia's filters are amazing. Um, it's just a really strange combo. So that's out there. But in the filter wheel that I put together for uh, my buddy, it was an Antlia tri-band, Antlia dual-band HA-03. Um, there is like a general luminance filter in there. We have a blackout filter. Um, because a lot of the um, CMOS cameras that are out nowadays don't have a shutter, which is unfortunate because the minute you use a camera that does have a shutter, it's awesome. Taking darks and biases is super quick. Um, but we have a blackout filter in there, and then we have an open slot in the wheel. So it's a five-position wheel. We're only using like two or three filters, actually. The other, And then we have an open sp slot. Um, so it's a five-position wheel. I only have four positions filled. And then we have an open slot to do the moon or something. But that's a permanently mounted system, so it's not a big deal. But if you have a one-shot color camera and you notice that you're starting to add filters to your camera setup, it might be time to look at a filter wheel because it keeps them clean. It keeps them in a safe spot. And that way they're not just laying around and you don't have to touch them and mess with them all the time. So I think filter wheels are the way to go personally if you can. Not every setup is going to do it. Not every budget's going to allow it. So... All right, Sharpless 308, the Dolphin Nebula. This is one of my favorite nebulas up right now. The problem is it doesn't get very high, and the other problem is it's a lot of oxygen. Um, so this is in Canis Major, about 4,500 light years away. I have not done this one visually. I'm sure the Dob, the big Dobbs can handle it. It's low, though. It doesn't get very high. Um, if you are going to go after this visually... O3 all the way oxygen three filter that's why it, it's glowing blue there's a lot of O3 um, sitting in this nebula now it's the same thing if you're going to be doing this from an astrophotography perspective you need to pound away on the O3 data for this um, big problem with oxygen three filters is number one uh, moonlight is actually in the same frequency as oxygen three so you're going to be limited on how much time you can actually push on this target or anything that has O3 um, because unlike hydrogen alpha which filters out everything um, O3 just because of where it sits in the spectrum happens to be along the same frequencies as a lot of 
uh, moon glow and even some light pollution. So if you're shooting oxygen three narrowband, uh, particularly in the city, actually, if you're shooting oxygen three period, um, it's going to take more time to build up that signal because a lot of cameras are not super sensitive in that frequency. Um, so it's going to take more time. I've seen a lot of images where people spend a lot of time on hydrogen and not enough on O3. Um, so you need to actually build up the O3 data to get that saturation and signal to come through to make up for how there's a lot of signal in hydrogen alpha. There's not as much signal in oxygen three. So you need to shoot more O3 to bring up the signal um, in your image uh, to compare it to H alpha. Like H alpha, you could probably do an hour or two and it would look amazing. O3, you're probably gonna need to do two hours, maybe more depending on how faint the target is. Um, so that's one problem with oxygen three filters. Um, and it has nothing to do with the filter itself. Um, number two um, actually has to do with the filter itself is the bandwidth of the filter. Uh, the narrower the bandwidth, the more contrast and the more on band the filter is going to be. Um, so if you're shooting in town like this guy, the Sharpless 308, um, if you want to make sure you're filtering out as much of the trash that's in the sky as possible, the narrower the band pass of that filter, the better. Um, that's why a lot of times a lot of people would recommend that you spend way more on your O3 filter than you would say like an H alpha. Personally, unless you want to shoot the Hubble palette, which some people do, I wouldn't actually waste your money on like a sulfur two filter. I would actually just do bicolor, which is like what you see here. This is a bicolor image. It's H alpha and O3. I would not waste my money. I've had S2 filters. I have two and I never ever use them. And they're nice ones. Um, I don't use them uh, because most of the objects up there don't have sulfur. So at this point, um, I would spend a decent amount of money on a good H alpha filter, probably somewhere in that if you've got the money, three nanometer, um, to about seven nanometer, somewhere in there. The sweet spot I think is like five. However, I wouldn't waste your money on sulfur two because what I would actually do if you wanted to shoot targets like this guy effectively, especially if you're doing monochrome, is don't waste your money on a sulfur filter and take all the money you would have burned on your sulfur filter and the O3 and dump it all in the O3 and get as narrow of a filter as possible, like the three nanometer ones. Um, so you could get away with like H alpha somewhere in the five, six, seven nanometer range, which is more budget friendly, and then spend a bunch of money on your O3, like three nanometers. And that'll allow you to use the O3 more often, especially when the moon is up. So you're not wasting as much time waiting for the moon to go away. You can get away with more stuff, uh, more time. Uh, so that's how I shot this one. This one was done with a five nanometer H alpha and a three nanometer O3. And the three nanometer O3 gives you a ton of contrast on something like this because it's such a narrow band. Um, but give it a go. Um, that's just my recommendations if you're talking about narrow band filters and stuff like this. Um, I'm a really big fan of filters. I like messing with them. I think they're cool. I know there's some questions in here. Uh, blah, 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 blah. I have been considering a dual, dual scope setup. Want to add one shot color to my mono rig. Capture luminance and narrow band. That's exactly what I do, Kevin. Um, in our observatory in California at Skies Away Remote Observatories, um, there's our setup, Skywatchers, and that is an Esprit 150 
ZWO6200 and a full set of chroma filters. It works awesome. Um, a friend of mine that's in the same observatory lets me borrow his setup and he kind of duplicated what we have almost one to one except his setup is one shot color. So a lot of times what I'll do is I'll take our setup and pound away on luminance and then I'll take his setup and just pound away on color and then I will actually blend the luminance into the color data um, and it works really well and let me just bring up because we have time um, let me just bring if you guys would like an episode on that that might be kind of interesting to talk about blending luminance and one shot color together because um, the one thing that sucks about one shot color is you don't have the the boost of the luminance um, but you can add luminance data onto one shot color and it does a really nice job um, so one of my favorite targets that I've oh, where is it there we go uh, so I did this as an experiment and some of you have actually seen this already this process was actually done on this because I wanted to try it so this was uh, Comet Leonard a little while ago where it passed M3 and like Kevin said limited time um, is kind of where this was coming from so the comet is moving really quick and I wanted to get it where it was near M3 so the goal was what would happen if we shot the comet in luminance and one shot color at the same time so the nice thing about this is there's two telescopes shooting it simultaneously it's kind of like contact why well, have one when you can have two at twice the price um, but the advantage of this is we only spent 20 or 30 minutes or I only spent 20 or 30 minutes actually imaging but I got about an hour worth of data because they're both shooting at the same time um, so I shot luminance on it and then right next to it I was shooting color exact same time um, and that's how it turned out I was really really happy with it and I really like that technique because again it's all about time and throughput um, so yeah you could go out for days and days and days on end or you could actually just shoot it at the same time with two different setups um, We'll have to do an episode on that. Luminance and one-shot color uh, and shooting at the same time. I know there's some people out there that do it. The thing that sucks about it is you have to have two of the same, almost two of the same setups. Uh, next one is M1. This is the Crab Nebula. It's up in Taurus, about 6,500 light years away. It's a fun one. It's small. Um, if you're in a dark sky site, uh, you can see some of the tendrils in there in very, very large telescopes, uh, probably around a 20-inch or so is where you can see some of those tendrils. Um, you probably want a UHC. I should try an H-beta sometime. I haven't tried it, but a UHC or H-beta would help bring out those tendrils. Again, they are very, very faint. Um, the only time I've really seen them pop is with my night vision um, on the 28 uh, daub that I've got. It's really impressive there. But other than that, M1's going to look like a little fuzzy ball visually. There's not a lot to it um, unless you've got some serious aperture to throw at it. Uh, visually or imaging wise it's a little bit easier but the big problem is it's small um, but again getting that some of that structure to come out uh, some hydrogen alpha day uh, detail would be good 
Um, let's see. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. There's some questions here I missed. For one shot color, what filters would you recommend? Uh, oh, so filters I would recommend for one shot color. Antlia Tri-Band. Antlia Dual Band HA03. Um, if you want to see one someone who has really just dominated with an Antlia dual band filter, uh, go to Instagram and find Vanilla Moon. Her name's Diana. Um, she works at Star Arizona. She's a phenomenal astrophotographer. Um, she's been rocking an Antlia dual band for a little while now, and it's insane what she does with it. Um, so if you want to go, go to Instagram, look up Vanilla Moon. She's fantastic. Um, if you want to talk to her, call her at Star Arizona. Again, one of the nicest people in the world. Um, but she destroys her shots with that dual band uh, Antlia filter. It's amazing filter. Um, she also really knows what she's doing. So, uh, but yeah, that dual band Antlia. So again, Antlia tri-band, Antlia dual band. And then you get into some of the more exotic stuff. But between those two and one-shot color, that's about all you're going to need. So, uh, Let's see. There's another question here. Is there any way to update an EQ6R Pro hand controller database or include sharpless objects? Not that I'm aware of. There is a user database that you can add some targets into the hand controller. Um, there should be some sharpless targets in there somewhere, but I'm going to have to go in and look up again. Um, or you could use the app and then slew it over to like sky safari. And then you have the whole sharpless category at there. Um, or you can get an ASI air and go after that. If, uh, if you're asking me about sharpless targets, I'm assuming you're imaging. So you could probably use some kind of third party program to get the sharpless stuff in there. Uh, for Sharpless 308 Visual, when you say darker, would you think I'd have a shot seeing it in 5.5, 8-inch dot? You probably want the darkest skies possible to get the Sharpless 308 and a good uh, Oxygen 3 filter. I haven't done it yet. I, I haven't tried that Nebula personally. It's It's probably easier than most people think, but I haven't tried that yet. Um, but do it. See, this is the big thing about visual stuff that I see a lot of people actually do is you get a lot of questions on, Hey, is it doable? Um, which is a fair and accurate question on anything. But if you're in a dark sky site, just try it, throw your, you'll have a lot of people over there that'll say, Oh, don't even bother. No, if you're in a good site, try it, experiment with it. If you don't see it, then you didn't see it, but at least you tried it. But I've been pleasantly surprised several times where the skies weren't ideal or I didn't have the right telescope and you would be surprised what you can see. I've seen the Horsehead Nebula in a six inch refractor. Didn't think we would do it, but we tried it. So, and we were pleasantly surprised. So don't, don't worry about it. If you're in a good sky and you've got an O3 filter, look for it, see what you get, report back and let me know. I'm going to pound through these real quick because I'm burning time. Uh, this is the Cone Nebula. It's up in Monoceros, 2,700 light years away. Um, it's an easy imaging one. Again, this is a dual, um, not dual band, but this is a uh, bicolor image, HA03. Um, a lot of these emission targets do very, very well, where you do H alpha for the red, O3 for the blue, 
or the green and then you make the green a uh, modified blend of the two filters um, which is another thing we could talk about someday if you want to do that where you're basically making an H beta channel out of your HA and O3 data same thing with the rosette nebula mono or this one was a bicolor image as well uh, just kind of experimenting um, with some stuff I want to I got to pound through it because we're actually getting to the end of it and I have a bunch of stuff we have to go over all right uh, here we go target of the month uh, totem as we call it um, some of you are collecting a bunch of patches so totem rules uh, this is for imaging only because um, we actually want to know that you did it um, if you have your entry please email it to uh, totem or t-o-t-m t-o-t yes at skywatchusa.com i need your name equipment image specifications mailing address it's for the u.s and canada only i'm sorry uh and the fit file or a raw file or whatever the raw version of your telescope is so we know that you actually shot it during the month that the actually was going on um, most of the totem targets we try to make challenging we try to get you off the beaten path rarely will these ever be a messier target um so this month totem is an easy one okay eric says this month is easy that means next month we're gonna have to make it even harder so yes i know this month is easy um easier um, but it's a lot of the times it's not always about making it difficult. It's just about trying something new, get off the beaten path, shoot something cool. There's a bunch of stuff out there. This is the 2023 totem patch that you will be receiving. If you enter this, um, uh, 2020, or I'm sorry, February's, uh, challenge was Abel 12, the hidden gem nebula. Um, and a lot of you did some really nice work here. Um, Simon's image actually really impressed me because it was with a canon t7 on the back of a c14 edge hd that's a lot of focal length and not an ideal camera and that's a pretty good shot of that um so a lot of you did a very nice job on this so thank you all for uh this one's very nice i like the cluster next to it um there's some really cool shots that came in this year or this month so thank you all for um providing your images there um and we definitely appreciate you being a part of it hopefully it was something fun uh to get you to take a look at what's different um floating out there in the universe so i like the color on this one that was a nice job this is a challenging target because you have a really bright star and then getting the nice detail on the nebula it's difficult uh so anyway that's uh all of our entries uh for the record i wasn't able to shoot uh the totem march target because the weather has been very bad um so we borrowed hubbles so i expect all of your images to be this good or better um yes your little tiny short tube 80 needs to outdo the hubble space telescope um so this is the target of the month for march uh hubble variable nebula ngc 2261 and monoceros there's i will let you know there is a lot of nebulosity hidden around this nebula so I would actually encourage you to go as deep as possible um, on this target. It is small, um, but there's a lot of cool detail around it. Um, I saw a really nice location. Um, so, yeah, uh, found a real nice uh, image. I think it Plane Wave posted it. One of their customers shot it. Was really impressed. So there's a lot of really cool detail out there. So try to go deep on this one. 
um, and see what you can find. But that is March uh, entry there. So go ahead and do it. Again, I expect your images to be this good or better. Um, and I look forward to seeing what you guys can get. So, and then for those of you who have already done and entered uh, the February stuff, I already have your names on a list. They've already been provided uh, to the shippers. So we're getting all of your patches out. Um, they'll be going out in the next week or two. So we'll be getting those out the door. Uh, that's pretty much it for this month. Thanks for watching. Please go ahead and subscribe. It lets us know we're doing a good job and that we should actually keep doing this. Um, if you like what you see here, please email us at info at skywatchusa.com. Let us know what you want to see next. Um, please leave a like on the video. Uh, that's pretty much it for March Night Skies. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking Prima Lucha Eagles. Um, we did an ASI Air walkthrough, and a lot of people really like that. So this is the computer that we actually use at our remote observatory, uh, is a Prima Lucha Eagle. Uh, these things are phenomenal. Um, but they're a serious piece of kit. Um, so if you're looking to do remote imaging or you want absolute total control uh, for your system, the Prima Lucha Eagles are uh, awesome. So we're going to go into detail there. I might try and snag one of the guys from Prima Lucha to come in and talk to us too because they know it really well. Um, they can tell us all the cool things that their new ones do, the Gen 4s. Um, but yeah, that's what we're doing next week. Uh, thank you very much for hanging out with us this Friday. I hope you have a great weekend. Please stay warm. Um, and we will see you guys next Friday. So uh, I don't think there's any more questions either. But uh, thanks very much, everyone. Appreciate you hanging out with us. Please leave a like on our videos. Uh, subscribe if you are not here, because if not, I'm going to find you. Um, and uh, yeah, we will see you guys next week. So thank you very much. Clear skies. Have a good weekend. Bye.